Ruth chapter 4 is all about Jesus. His name is never mentioned, but if we're reading our Bible the way God intends, if we're making those intercanonical connections and legitimately linking up all the little stories to that one big story of the Bible, what's called the meta narrative, then we clearly see that this chapter, this book, the book of Ruth, is all about our Savior. In surprising ways, 1,000 years before Jesus' birth, the book of Ruth glorifies his saving reign. This book is about the work of God in the darkest of times to prepare the world for the glory of Jesus Christ. The title for our sermon today, you can see this in your bulletins, is Jesus, Our Redeemer and Brother. And I am so grateful to God to have the privilege of preaching this text to you today, my brothers and sisters in Christ. As you can see in your bulletin, there are three scenes, and I'm going to be moving quickly through the first and second scene. It's a legal forum with a lot of uh, arcane technical details, uh, because I wanted to get us to Genesis chapter 38 and the story of Judah and Tamar. So let's pick up from where we were last week. Naomi has said at the end of chapter 3 that Boaz will not delay in securing Ruth's redemption. That word keeps being used over and over again, her redemption. He will act today, and so he does. Verse 1 of chapter 4 takes place the morning after the threshing floor incident. So look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the family guardian he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Now, in the Hebrew, Boaz does not call this man my friend. Instead, the author has Boaz calling the man Mr. So-and-so. It's the author calling him that, not Boaz. And Mr. So-and-so is an insulting sort of term. Why is that? Because this is a man who refuses to restore the name of the dead to his proper inheritance. Which in this culture is a terrible, terrible transgression. So he himself is given no name. The author is telling us in verse 1, This guy's a no-good little weasel. Just wait and see. He's Mr. So-and-so. We're not even going to give him a name. And what Boaz does in verse 2 is he convenes a legal forum. Verse 2, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. And make no mistake, this isn't just a bunch of old dudes sitting around whittling sticks. (laughs) This is a courtroom scene. This was a non-literate society. And legal transactions were recorded orally and preserved in people's memory for posterity. That's how it worked. These 10 elders of the town, they're acting as witnesses. Verse 3. Then he said to the family guardian, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling or maybe transferring, surrendering the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, 
Tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Okay, Boaz has just introduced a totally new development and complication in the story. This is the first time any mention has been made of land ownership. Now, it's next to impossible to say with certainty this is the most difficult issue to understand in the whole book. But it appears, it appears Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband, before emigrating with his family 10 years before to the land of Moab, sold what's called the usufruct of his land. Usufruct is a specialized real estate term. It's the legal right to use and derive profit or benefit from property that belongs to another person, which would mean for the last 10 years, all the produce and revenue of this field Boaz is talking about has been going to others, which is why Ruth has been slaving away, gleaning in the fields. Naomi has family land, but no income coming from the family land. Her dead husband sold away those rights to another party. I think that's the best solution. Uh, Boaz is calling upon Mr. So-and-so, the nearer redeemer, to repurchase those rights from its present possessor, somebody we never meet in this story. Naomi has no money to do it herself. This is the moral obligation of the goel. And Boaz is calling upon Mr. So-and-so to act in this capacity. Verse 4, I will redeem it, he said. And we can just see this guy licking his chops at this moment. Thank you. Thank you, Boaz, for bringing this little piece of business to my attention. I'll be sure to get right on that. And with that, Mr. So-and-so may have thought negotiations were over. Time to go home and count his money. But the reader knows it can't be over here. Boaz has pledged himself to redeem Ruth and to restore Naomi to life and fullness. So it can't be over yet. This this stuff hasn't happened yet. So now Boaz plays his trump card. And this is where we see his wisdom for calling such a public assembly of 10 elders. Because if this were only about the usufruct of the land, it would be like contesting a parking ticket in the Supreme Court. It's legal overkill. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz is now publicly calling upon Mr. So-and-so, the nearer redeemer, to take on the voluntary, moral, family responsibility of marrying the widow, Ruth, and raising up an heir for her dead husband, Malon, right? An heir outside Mr. So-and-so's own family. An heir who will stand in line to inherit this same field. Boaz is a thinking dude. This is really smart. Because Mr. So-and-so is now caught in an ethical and economic dilemma. 
He's just publicly declared his willingness to assume the requirements of redemption. I mean, and who, who wouldn't want that, right? I mean, he stands to gain a great deal. But if he were now publicly in front of legal witnesses to declare his willingness to take on the voluntary family responsibility of marrying the widow, Ruth, and raising an heir to the same field, which of course functions to his economic disadvantage. And then in the years to come, if he were to ignore this pledge and duty, he would look like a low-life scumbag in front of all of Bethlehem. It would reveal to everyone that his willingness to redeem the property sprang only from motives of personal gain and the acquisition of property, rather than family restoration and helping out the poor widows of the family who own the rights to the land. So in verse 6, the weasel shows his true colors. He was just being mercenary all along. Verse 6, at this the family guardian said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Mr. So-and-so is unwilling to shoulder his full moral moral responsibility as the redeemer with the prior rights. So he summons Boaz to acquire his rights. And he expresses the transfer of those rights symbolically by removing his sandal and giving it to Boaz. I just can't imagine. Here you go. (laughs) But then we have this explanatory note, verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to another. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Obviously, by the time this was written, that was no longer the case. But back in the day, this is how it was. Verse 8. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Boaz's behavior in this affair is outstanding. Outstanding. He is under no legal obligation to be doing any of this. And he's taking a big economic hit to help out these two widows, one of whom is a barren Moabite, who will soon be his wife. And the elders of the town and all the people at the gate who are watching are very pleased. And so they impart a threefold blessing on Boaz for his selfless and his upright conduct. Verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord, Yahweh, make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. All right, we need to fuse our 21st century Canadian cultural horizon with the ancient Near East. This is always the trick. (laughs) In this culture, all right, in Ruth's culture, there is no higher honor for a woman than to be a baby-making machine who gives birth to boys each time. 
All, all, the, all the dink women of Toronto, double income, no kids, living lives of liberated fulfillment in their high-paying, high-power careers, forget about it. All right? Each night, every one of them would be grabbing their husband by the scruff of the neck and saying, give me sons. Yeah. So, in their first blessing, the elders pray that Ruth may have the same baby-making capacity, the same fecundity, I love that word, as the two matriarchs of Israel, Rachel and Leah. These are the women in Israel who really set the gold standard of motherhood. They gave birth with the help of two concubines to the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you're a Jew, then you can't top that. That's as good as it gets. The elders are praying that Ruth's womb would be just as prolific as these two matriarchs. So prolific fecundity. Remember, too, both Rachel and Leah were alternately barren and fruitful. And the elders know it was God who opened and shut their wombs. Ruth has been barren for 10 years. This is a prayer that God would open her womb. She's probably 25, 26 at this point. Second blessing, verse 11. May you have standing in Ephrathah, and be famous in Bethlehem. Now, this blessing follows immediately after the blessing on Ruth that she may have lots and lots of children. So it's probably best to look at the second blessing as being related to that. The elders are saying, Boaz, through your children, may you have standing in your clan and be famous in Bethlehem through your kids. Now, we haven't got there yet. But we know from the genealogy how this blessing was initially fulfilled, don't we? Boaz's great-grandson is King David. And if you're a Jewish man, and if a Jewish man is going to have standing in his clan, if he's going to be famous through his children, that's as good as it gets. But for the readers of this side of the New Testament... We know this blessing was ultimately fulfilled, how? In Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is a direct descendant of Boaz and of David, and he was born in this very town. Verse 12. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. <clears throat> you see, these blessings aren't just polite things to say, you know, just nice congratulatory remarks on the day of your nuptials, that kind of thing. These men are prophesying, right? They're speaking better than they know by the power of the Holy Spirit. These last two blessings tie the whole story of the Bible together and lead us directly to Jesus Christ. If we're not seeing that, we're not reading the book of Ruth properly. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. It, it seems like such a random blessing, doesn't it? Particularly if you know the sordid backstory to Perez's birth. But no, this is a stupendously important verse. And I'm going to come back to it in our concluding point, so just keep your finger there. Let's move now to the second scene, a brief but powerful scene where a son is born to Ruth and Boaz and Naomi is restored to life and fullness. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. 
when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The Lord has closed Ruth's womb for 10 years so that his sovereign purposes can be worked out in Ruth's life. Now, the Lord decides it's time to open her womb so that his sovereign purposes can be worked out in Ruth's life. But notice the focus in verses 14 to 17. It isn't on Ruth at all or on Boaz. The focus is on Naomi and on the child. The speech of the neighborhood women is devoted almost exclusively to describing Naomi's restoration to life and fullness. And it's very important that the women of Bethlehem should be the ones who interpret the significance of Obed's birth. Why is that? Why is that only right and proper? It's because it was these same women who were on the receiving end, right, of Naomi's bitter tirade against God back in chapter 1. It's these same women who had to listen to Naomi lament her emptiness and how God had been cruel and unloving toward her. And now, these same ladies are able to show Naomi how God has not abandoned her. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a family guardian, a redeemer, Goel. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed, which means guardian, provider. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Whose son is this? Biologically, he's Ruth's and Boaz. But that's not what the text says. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Why does it say that? To make crystal clear God's reversal of Naomi's situation. To make crystal clear God's reversal of Naomi's situation. The Lord took her sons away in chapter 1. Now the Lord has restored to her a son in chapter 4, plus given her a daughter-in-law who loves her and is better to her than seven sons. Naomi said in chapter 121, I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. But now she's full again and has been restored to life because the Lord has given her a son through Ruth. And it's this child, Obed, who is the ultimate redeemer in this family drama, not Boaz. And the women say so in verse 14. Praise be to the Lord, who this day, that it is the day of Obed's birth, has not left you without a family guardian, a redeemer, a goel. But why is Obed called a redeemer? 
At one level, he simply redeems Naomi from uh, hopelessness in her old age. As the women say in verse 15, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. But there's another level of meaning. This child will be the grandfather of King David. Verse 17b, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wham, that's supposed to hit us right between the eyes. This is where Christians who are reading their Bible canonically with a view of salvation history throw on the brakes and say, whoa, right there, right there is why the story of Ruth is in the Bible. But it isn't until the last five verses that we know for sure, though we've had some clues along the way. It's like a movie where it's not until the end of the film and that twist comes that everything's put into perspective. But to get the full, full weight of what's happening here, we need to go back to what what the elders said at the gate, the third blessing of verse 12. They say, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore Judah. Beloved, it's that verse, verse 12, plus verse 17, plus the last two verses of the genealogy in chapter 4 that brings everything together. And we see that this story is ultimately, ultimately all about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and King. So let's turn back now to the Old Testament story about 700 years previous, um, Genesis chapter 38. This is on page 40 of your church Bibles. Genesis 38. Let me just give you a a bit of a, a patriarch review, okay? Make sure we're all on the same page. By the time the reader arrives at chapter 38 of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Sarah and Abraham, the original matriarch and patriarch of the nation of Israel, they've died. Isaac, their one son, the son of promise, he married his father's grandniece, Rebekah. Rebekah, after being barren for 20 years, gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. And although Jacob is the younger brother, he's the one who receives all the covenant blessings that God made to Abraham. Why? Because his older brother, Esau, sells Jacob, sold Jacob his natural birthright for a bowl of stew, which means it's the line of Jacob. It's the line of the younger brother, not Esau, the older brother, through whom The nation of Israel will trace its roots and through whom eventually Jesus the Messiah will come. Jacob marries two women, his first cousins, Rachel and Leah, who are sisters, plus he has concubines or mistresses. Jacob has 12 sons in all. Six are born through Leah, the wife he does not love, including Judah, the Judah we read of in Genesis chapter 38. Four sons are born to concubines. Two children, Joseph and Benjamin, are born to Rachel, the wife Jacob loves. And so the sons of Rachel, they're extra, extra precious to Jacob. And his brothers are jealous of their father's affections for Joseph. And so they decide to throw him into an empty cistern after being dissuaded by their brother Reuben not to just murder him. But Judah, Judah sees an opportunity here for financial gain. He suggests they sell their half-brother into slavery, and the other brothers agree. Nice guys. 
Joseph is sold into slavery. And so down to Egypt he goes. That all takes place in chapter 37. Now we come to chapter 38. The most sexually explicit chapter in the book of Genesis. And it's smack dab in the middle of the Joseph narrative. Which is a story we teach children in Sunday school. At first blush... It looks like the narrative's gone wildly off course down some lurid back alley here. Why in the world is this story in our Bibles? Chapter 38 is a crazy text. Well, it's like I mentioned last week. The Bible's not a morality tale, right? It's a history. It's a history of God interacting with his fallen creation and redeeming a people for himself. He's saving people from the due penalty of their sins through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus, which makes Genesis 38 one of the most important chapters in the whole book. This chapter is one of the sinews that holds the whole Bible together. The account of Judah and Tamar is important because it relates to the covenant that God made with the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham. God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation, and all the families of the world will be blessed in you. And all the families of the world will be blessed through Abraham's direct ancestor, Jesus. That's what that's referring to, to Jesus. But what we see happening here in chapter 38, this sort of lurid account, is Judah, the fourth son of Jacob and Leah, failing to do his part to see this promise fulfilled. What tribe does Jesus belong to? The tribe of Judah. That means in Genesis chapter 38, Judah is jeopardizing all of salvation history. He's jeopardizing Jesus' birth. He's jeopardizing the cross. Which is why in God's sovereign providence, 2,000 years before our Lord's birth, this chapter is included in the biblical account despite its sexual nature. Though Judah doesn't know it, it's through his lineage directly that the Savior of the world will be born, the one who will crush the head of the serpent, Satan, as God promised in Genesis 3.15. So let's look at this chapter. Genesis 38, verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam, a town southwest of Jerusalem named Hera. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. Uh, met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kizib that she gave birth to him. So, verses 1 to 5 basically serve as a genealogy sketching Judah's marriage to a Canaanite woman and the subsequent birth of three sons. So that's a good thing in that culture, right? Prolific fecundity, boys all the way, Ur, Onan, Shelah. The boys grow up, and Judah gets his eldest son, Ur, a Canaanite wife named Tamar. Tamar means palm tree. So you kind of think of that today we have ladies named Rose, Daisy, Violet, Jasmine, Marigold, right? And palm tree. <laughs> yeah. 
Obviously, Judah is thinking that if marrying a non-Israelite was good enough for him, then it's good enough for his boy Ur. But Ur is a wicked man, and the Lord kills him for his sin, we read in verse 7, thus leaving Tamar, palm tree, a childless widow. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother, brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law. Literally, it means, it says, leverate her and raise up offspring for your brother. We learned all about leveret marriage last week. That's why we took the time to do this. In this culture, if a man dies without having any children, his brother must marry his sister-in-law and raise up offspring in his dead brother's name. That child would not be the child of the brother-in-law. Legally, it would be the child of the first brother, the dead brother, thus perpetuating his name. But the responsibility of marrying one's sister-in-law wasn't always welcomed. And Judah's son, Onan, is one of these guys who wants to shirk his duty. Verse 9, But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Onan ejaculates on the ground every time he has intercourse with Tamar. This is due to be selfish and wicked in the sight of God, so Yahweh kills Onan for his sin. Judah's family line is in trouble. He only has one male heir now, Shalat, to carry on his family name. Just one boy. This woman, Tamar, is a curse. Every son of his who has intercourse with her dies. No more. It stops now. So Judah lies to his daughter-in-law. He tells Tamar that he's going to give her his youngest son, Shelah, after he gets a bit older, but he plans to do nothing of the sort. Judah tells Tamar to move back with her folks in the meantime in order to get, get her geographically removed from his own family. But now... Now, in this culture, Tamar is legally betrothed to Shelah. They're legally betrothed. However, Judah promptly forgets about Tamar and his responsibilities toward her and his dead son, Ur, and the duties incumbent upon him as a member of Abraham's family. It's through his seed that the whole world is going to be blessed. But Judah cares nothing for this promise or this responsibility. Time passes. Verse 12 says, After a long time, Judah's Canaanite wife dies. And after Judah recovers from his grief, he goes with his friend, Herod the Adulamite, a non-Israelite, up to a sheep-shearing festival in Timnah. Tamar, palm tree, hears that Judah is going to Timnah for the festival. And she seizes this opportunity to produce a child for her dead husband and to carry on his name. And folks, we need to see that Tamar is not a woman of loose virtue who's seeking to gratify sexual lust here. All right? She's trying to raise up offspring for her dead husband. She is forced forced to take extreme measures and there's no condemnation of her in the account for what she does her actions are portrayed in a sympathetic light it's judah and onan they're the scoundrels in this story 
And I'm just going to read the rest of the account to the end of the chapter, making comments here and there. But I think we have enough information now just to kind of fill in all the gaps, right? So look at verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah, Judah's third son, had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. And this would be the equivalent of Judah giving Tamar his driver's license and all his credit cards. Right? Judah was a rich man, and he would have owned his own personally engraved seal. This seal is carried on a cord that's threaded uh, through the middle. The staff is a symbol of authority and had a carved head, which would indicate ownership. So this is all his ID and his credit cards. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at a name? Uh, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. She's broken her betrothal vow. She's committed adultery. She must die. Very, very, very self-righteous, right? Verse 25, and as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shalah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But then he drew back his hand. His brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez, which means breaking out. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was named Zerah, which means scarlet. All right. With all that under our belts, go back to Ruth chapter 4. When the elders, in verse 12 of Ruth 4, bless Boaz, what do they say? May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And Perez's name appears again in the book of Ruth in the genealogy at the end of chapter 4. Look at verse 18. This then is the family line of 
Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram, etc., etc. 21. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. So you see, if, if Perez is a forefather of King David, then he's also, he's also the forefather of Jesus because Jesus is a direct descendant of King David. As well, Judah and Tamar, Perez and Zerah are all of them. All of them are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, which we'll turn to in a minute. Brothers and sisters, this means this story of Judah and Tamar, which initially seems so marginal and weird and out of place in the Joseph narrative, actually records a vital, vital link in God's history of redemption. Tamar through her determination to have children, secured for Judah, she secured for Judah the honor of fathering both King David and the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. That's why Genesis 38 is such an important chapter. It's essential. And it's also why the genealogy at the end of Ruth is so important. It serves as the salvation historical climax of the story. And if we know the heritage of Jesus, then we know that Tamar, palm tree, is part of a whole line of suspect women that make up the Messiah's lineage, which clearly shows us that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, God incarnate, identifies with human beings in our fallen, sinful weakness. Despite our sins, despite the skeletons in our family closets, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. Every family has scandal. Everyone here has relatives who are less than savory. Right? <laughs> in my own family tree, um, this is back like in 1903, 1904, um, somebody married into my family who ended up murdering his entire family, his wife, his pregnant wife, and his four children with a hammer. And then he blew his brains out with a shotgun. He owed money all over town. And my great aunt, my grandfather's sister, I remember her saying, when they were growing up, no one ever, ever was allowed to talk about that. That was an absolute scandal. He killed them all with a hammer and then uh, shot himself. Jesus' own family had scandal. He was descended from a long line of scoundrels and wicked kings and prostitutes and Gentile adulterers and idolaters. When we look at the family tree of Jesus... At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, I want us to turn there. Look at Matthew chapter 1, 965 in our church Bibles. But Matthew 1, we look at this genealogy. This, we're looking at a rogues gallery. Okay? In particular, it's interesting to consider the less than reputable women in Jesus' family tree. And I want to zero in on this, not because I'm a chauvinistic pig, but because Matthew himself broke with convention by even including women in his genealogy. It just wasn't done in this culture. You only included men in the family tree. And the women Matthew does decide to include are very unsavory to boot. So you would think Matthew would want to kind of pad uh, Jesus' genealogy a little bit. 
This is, after all, the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior of the world, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Any good hagiographer would want to kind of sweep scandal away from such a figure. But Matthew doesn't do that, and he has a very important theological purpose for not doing that. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Verse 3, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, a Canaanite woman, not a Jew, who seduced her father-in-law and was impregnated by him pretending to be a prostitute. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. We read about Rahab in the book of Joshua, a Gentile prostitute, the only survivor along with everyone in her house when the Israelites destroyed the city of Jericho. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, a Moabite. Right? And we all know where Moabites come from. Ruth comes from stock spawned through drunken, incestuous sex. And her incestuous DNA becomes part of Jesus. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, an adulteress. She herself was an Israelite, but her husband was a Hittite, which probably led to her being regarded as a Hittite. Skip down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. The birth of Jesus himself was tainted with scandal. Mary's reputation, her sexual reputation, certainly wasn't white as snow. In John's gospel, even, John's, uh, Jesus' opponents say, we are not illegitimate children, John 8, 41. It was known. No one's thinking Mary got impregnated by the Holy Spirit. No one's thinking that. It's like your mom you know, had sex before she was married to Joseph. We are not illegitimate children. You are, Jesus. It was known. Don Carson writes this. The women in this genealogy call attention to the abundant presence of both surprise and scandal in the Messiah's lineage. The sovereign plans of God are often worked out through the most surprising turns of events, even through women who are Gentiles, prostitutes, adulterers, and worse. How, how is this possible? How is it possible for God to identify with human beings so completely, even to the extent of giving his son the DNA his ancestors had. I'm glad that I come from my stock of protoplasm, right? I wouldn't want the DNA in Jesus' family, frankly. Indeed, our Lord utterly humbled himself. He humbled himself to such an extent and entered into our sinful human experience to such an extent that it boggles the mind. Think of it. Such a high and lofty God, condescending to enter so fully into our experience, even to the extent that, as God says in Hebrews 2.11, both the one who makes people holy, that is Jesus, and those who are made holy, are of the same Family. 
So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2.11. That is remarkable. He made us. And then we shook our puny fists in his face and told him this was our world. And we wanted no part of him. Then he donned our flesh. He became a human being and is not ashamed to be called our brother. What? Jesus is my brother? God is my father? Yes. The Bible says that if we're united to Jesus Christ through faith, these privileges are ours. We're of the same family. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Our Heavenly Father wants us to have an otherworldly, biblical perspective on our existence. We are of infinite, infinite value if we're in Christ. It doesn't matter our pedigree or how many skeletons are in our family's history or what disgusting, terrible sins we've committed. If we're in Christ, those things no longer matter. And our local church should be one of those places that collects people with problems and bad reputations. It's a badge of honor, really. We're supposed to be the most non-judgmental group of people on the face of the earth. The disenfranchised should feel right at home in our local assembly. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Heaven will be full of the outcasts of society who trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Men and women from horrendous backgrounds who indulged in terrible wickedness, whose families are a byword in the towns they were raised. I'm from a small town. I know what that's like. It's brutal. You know, the Cunninghams are trash. And they've been trash for generations. Don't befriend the Cunninghams. Don't date them. That's what, it's, that's what it can be like. Those are the standards the world judges by, not God. Romans 4, 5. God justifies the ungodly. And in Christ, all our sin has been wiped away. And forgiveness lavished upon us in infinite measure. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus loves us. He loves us. He identifies with us in our fallen, sinful weakness, despite our sins. And he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters.